I'm Andrew Blumenfeld. This is the Money in Politics podcast. But before we get into today's episode, I wanted to take a minute to talk about what our country has been experiencing recently. Like you, I was horrified by the murder of George Floyd. What happened in those eight minutes and 46 seconds shocks the conscience, but tragically, it's part of a long history of injustice. A near endless list of black Americans have endured assaults on their dignity, liberty, and their lives at the hands of systemic racism. The protests and their demands for change are so important. And while they are challenging a very insidious reality in our country, racism, that has roots dating back hundreds of years, the means by which those challenges are being made, peaceful protests, civil disobedience, these are among some of the best of America's traditions. And they are a cornerstone of a healthy, functioning democracy. And so while it was not originally planned this way, I'm glad that today I happen to be speaking with someone who works to shine a light on the important structures that preserve a strong democracy and the ways in which those structures are being threatened or even eroded. I'm speaking with David Hawkins. He's the editor-in-chief of The Fulcrum. The Fulcrum describes itself this way. They say they are a digital news organization focused exclusively on efforts to reverse the dysfunctions plaguing American democracy. At times like these, that feels especially important. Now, this is the point in the episode where I'd usually say, but first, here's a message from Call Time AI and let you hear a little about Call Time. But today, I want to bring you this message from Call Time myself. At Call Time, we are doubling down our efforts to increase the presence of Black Americans in elected positions of power, as representational leadership is critical to affecting meaningful institutional change. First and foremost, this means that we will begin working with existing organizations that have this as their North Star to make our platform call time available without cost to the candidates they work with. If you have suggestions for groups that support and train black candidates that we should be partnering with in this effort, please shoot us an email. You can send your thoughts to hello at calltime.ai. So I'm here now with David. David, why don't you start by telling us a little bit about yourself, your background, how it is that you came to be editor-in-chief of The Fulcrum? Sure. Thank you. First of all, thanks, of course, for, for having me on. So David Hawkins, the editor-in-chief of The Fulcrum, and The Fulcrum was created a year and a half ago. And we call ourselves the first and still only nonprofit, nonpartisan news site that is devoted entirely to covering the issues of our challenged democratic system and all the various ideas out there for fixing it. This was a wonderful opportunity for me after a pretty long run of I think 23 years at Congressional Quarterly and Roll Call, which if there are any sort of real Congress geeks listening, they might know Congressional Quarterly was the foremost chronicler of congressional policymaking in Washington and Roll Call the foremost chronicler of the people and politics of Congress. They were two separate companies for a while. They became one company and I helped lead that for a while and was managing editor of the CQ magazine for six years and so have really been immersed in covering Congress since the mid-1990s and, and saw it, one of the depressing aspects of that was to watch the steady decline of Congress as a functional institution. When I arrived, and even when Newt Gingrich, my first day at CQ was the day Newt Gingrich became the first Republican Speaker of the House for 40 years. And even then, it worked more often than it didn't. Bill Clinton and Newt Gingrich did deals and things happened and there was not this and Republicans voted for Democratic bills to the tune of maybe a dozen to two dozen and Democrats voted for Republican bills in the same number. And there were there were Republicans who were more liberal than some Democrats and Democrats who were more conservative than some Republicans. All that has declined in the last 20 years. We are now at a total 
partisan gridlock. So one of one of the motives of the fulcrum was to that's one of the stories we want to cover is how to make Congress work better, how to make our campaign finance system work better, how to make redistricting a little bit fairer for for people, how to make voting, of course, fairer. So those those are the big topics we're covering. And you say it's been around now for a year and a half. So, I mean, I think our listeners probably have some inclination as to what may have been the motivation at this moment in time to launch the fulcrum. But anything you want to add about sort of what were the things that catalyzed a year and a half ago, the the birth of this outlet? To your point, this is certainly an evolution that you're describing that's happened over decades. But but a year and a half ago, did a bunch of things all converge onto one another to create the fulcrum? Well, I think it's money helped converge on it to create the fulcrum. We had, we have some generous uh, funders who are willing to help us hire a team and create a website, which I'll just plug, obviously, as the fulcrum.us, fulcrum.us. But I guess what galvanized it was, you know, the run up to the presidential elections. We put this together in the summer of 2018. We got the funders organized. We got off the ground in essentially January of 2019. And the notion was, if the issues of the challenged democracy are not going to be addressed in the 2020 presidential campaign by candidates who might make this a priority, then it's going to be a, another four-year slog of total dysfunction and the voters being less important to the process than the big moneyed interests. And so we better stand this up, try and become a sort of a community. Part of what we're trying to do is become a community bulletin board, essentially a, a community gathering place for people who, when they're thinking about their own votes, think that the broken democracy is one of the things that's motivating them to go to the polls. We sort of want to be a place where if you wake up some morning, not necessarily in D.C. or New York or Los Angeles, but if you you wake up in Kalamazoo, uh, Michigan, or Charlotte, North Carolina, or Terre Haute, Indiana, and you say, yeah, this system doesn't work for me. Where do I go to read about what the problems are and how to fix it? That the fulcrum.us would be that place. So we thought that was the time to do it. Makes a lot of sense to me. And certainly it's hard to, I mean, I'm, I'm sure people feel like this at, at various stages in history, but it's hard to be sitting at the moment we're sitting in and not have an appreciation for both A, how broken our democracy does feel in so many ways, and B, how critical it is to get it right. And what an opportunity sitting squarely, you know, ahead of a major you know, presidential and congressional and state elections around the country. You mentioned that you're a you know you want to be sort of a, a home and a gathering place. You you do news coverage, right? But you also have opinion and just sort of other ways people can engage with that content on your website. Is that right? That, that's exactly right. So so the slogan on the on the website is news, debate, and community are levers for a better democracy. Levers being the reference, of course, to the fulcrum. Sure. So, right. So we have a, we have an op-ed every day. We work real hard to get a diversity of voices on our page, not just gender diversity or and ethnic diversity, but age diversity and ideological diversity onto our site. And then we do have a, a really extensive community calendar of efforts going around on around the country to galvanize people who are interested in democracy reform, educate them. We point them towards movies, documentaries, books. So, yes, it's, we want it. We want to be a gathering, a hub sort of the media hub for for this movement. And this notion of democracy reform obviously has a lot of components to it. You mentioned a few of them that are focuses of the the Fulcrum's coverage and what people are writing about and opinions. Obviously, the topic of this podcast sits squarely in the center of that, uh, or at least among the the issues that you talk about, is money in politics, right? So again, it's probably obvious to some, but maybe just make plain for us, why is money in politics such a big piece of the sort of democracy reform lens through which the Fulcrum is producing content? 
Well, that's you're you're right that it is it is obvious to some, but it's it's not as obvious to many 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 millions of voters as probably it should be. That's right. Money is essentially unregulated in the system now, and it is flowing not just towards the candidates themselves, but it's flowing onto the airwaves, the TV airwaves, the radio airwaves, and the the interwebs airwaves <laughs> at a really high rate of speed. It's unfettered, it's unregulated, it's undisclosed in many cases. And this has all happened at a highly accelerated rate in the 10 years since the Supreme Court essentially took took the brakes off, said corporations, unions, rich people all have a First Amendment right to spend as much as they would like trying to influence the outcome of elections. So there's all kinds of different ways to graph it. But trust me when I say the spending has gone up almost exponentially in the last 10 years, in, depending on how you measure it. And And really what that means is that the small dollar, the so-called small dollar donors, even the people who want to get involved and want to put their oar in financially, that those small dollar donations that most Americans, if they want to give it all, can afford to give 25 bucks, 50 bucks, 100 bucks. Sure. You could give those that amount of money. Everybody on your block and in, in your friend group and who you went to school with and who lives in your neighborhood, they could all chip in 100 bucks. And that wouldn't come close to what one billionaire or one corporate entity or one interest group that is gathering money from others can can give. So if you think that what democracy reform means is a lowercase d way of spreading the power out more to voters and away from the few, then doing something to, if not regulate money in politics, which doesn't look easy to do right now, but at least disclose what's going on a little bit better and force into the sunshine more disclosure of how this is happening, we think is one of the central stories that we're about. And you mentioned Citizens United, and it makes me think about something that I was excited to talk to you about, which is that maybe one of the best examples of how the fulcrum is not just a news outlet, it's also a hub and an opportunity for engagement, is that you have this thing called Democracy Madness Tournament. Is that right? That's right. That's right. You want to tell me a little about it? Sure. This was born of right about the time that the that the pandemic you know shut down normal normal life and normal digressions like watching college basketball at the end of March. And so we thought, well, let's try and do something fun and give people a game that they can watch and participate in instead of March Madness or instead of baseball season. Sure. And so what we did was we the, our team sat around and we came up with the 64 most prominent proposals for fixing the democratic system. And we created a draw with four different divisions. And we put this, started putting this up before our readers to say, you know, this tournament is about you. This tournament is about trying to find out what our audience thinks are the most important issues, the most important ideas, the things that would be most consequential for making the system work better. And we've been winnowing it down ever since. And we're down to the final final. The finals are happening right now. If you go to the fulcrum.us. I guess I'll, I can spoil the surprise and tell you what, that we're down to the last two. Uh, <laughs> and the last two are ranked choice voting, which is this idea that instead of just going into the voting booth and voting for one person, you go to your voting booth or pick up your mail-in ballot and you can rank your choices. And then if nobody is ranked number one on a majority of ballots and wins outright, then the system creates sort of instant runoffs and winnows away poorly, poor finishing candidates, candidates with few first place votes until somebody emerges who has a majority support. So that's what ranked choice voting is. It's used in several cities. It's going to be starting to be used in New York to elect the mayor next year. It's used in every election in Maine. 
Uh, the people of Massachusetts are going to vote this fall on whether to add that. It's sort of the hot ticket in the world of democracy reform. So that's one thing in the finals. And then the other thing is the in the finals is something called the National Popular Vote Interstate Compact, which is being promoted as the best way to get rid of the Electoral College as we know it without amending the Constitution to actually get rid of the Electoral College, which is a highly improbable thing. And so instead, the idea here is that states can commit their electoral votes to the winner of the national popular vote. Even if it's not the winner of their state, they would commit their votes. But this deal, this compact, would only take effect if states with at least 270 electoral votes, a majority of the Electoral College, sign on. So far, actually, 196 electoral votes worth of states, I think it's 16 states in D.C., have signed on to this pact. Hmm. So the idea here is this would effectively mean that the winner of the national popular vote would win the presidency just using the Electoral College as a mechanism. So those are the those are the two finals. They weren't our two top seeds. That's repealing Citizens United was a number one seed, but it didn't quite get past ranked choice voting, as I as I remember. So you had to start the brackets. The four, quote unquote, regions were were sort of categories, right? So the two you mentioned, why don't you tell us which categories did those two come from? And then, yeah, the other, what were the other two categories? What were all four categories? Well, yeah, so we did have a, we had a money and politics category. Right, right. And we had an elections category. And elections category was where ranked choice voting came out. There's, a, there's there are other proposals. There's something called approval voting. There's multi-member districts, the idea of electing more than one person out of each congressional or legislative district. Hmm. And then we had an elections category, which was more about a lot of the things that are in the news right now, making it easier to register to vote, guaranteeing you can register online, guaranteeing you can use vote by mail without having to give an excuse, which is still the the rule in 16 states. And then we had sort of a best of the rest, Hmm. which was sort of a hodgepodge. Some of it involved ways of fixing Congress. Should we give members of Congress a pay raise? Should we restrict lobbying? Should we give staff in Congress a pay raise? Should we limit members of Congress's terms, do away with the Senate filibuster, on and on? So there was, the list went on and on. And and here we are at the final two. And I'm, I'm bummed to hear that the money and politics one didn't make it through. But actually, why don't you tell us a little bit more about what made up that that bracket? So the winning idea within that region, if you will, was this repeal of Citizens United do you remember some of the things that, that fell to the wayside in the wake of Citizens United repeal? I do. And I, so repealing Citizens United, one of, the, one of the reasons maybe it didn't do well in the, after it won its region is that to repeal Citizens United, if you really wanted to repeal it, the only way to repeal it, there are two ways to repeal it. You could amend the Constitution to say, notwithstanding what the Supreme Court has said, the First Amendment is not violated by regulating campaign finance. So therefore, states and Congress can regulate campaign finance. But that's highly unlikely. Amending the Constitution just to give do a five-second civics lesson is requires two-thirds majority of the House, two-thirds majority of the Senate, and 38 or three-quarters of the states. So highly unlikely. Or the other way to do it would be to change the membership of the Supreme Court and have a newly constituted Supreme Court revisit that decision and say, that we got that one wrong. That rarely happens. You know, it happened with the Dred Scott decision before the Civil War. But big decisions like this don't get overturned. So what else was up against it? There were all kinds of ways for the public financing of elections. That's a hot topic right now. Should states and cities agree to just help pay the campaign bills of certain candidates to reduce their need for funding? And should there also be a a, a chat to sort of caveat, which is you can get public money 
if you decline to take big fat cat contributions from big businesses and millionaires. That was one idea. A sort of alternative idea of that, which has been, uh, which is what's going on now in Seattle. They actually have a system of vouchers where the city of Seattle sends, it's almost like a booklet of vouchers. I think it's four $25 vouchers to every registered voter in Seattle and says, you can spend these here. These are your contributions to give. The only rule, the only rule is that the people who get the contributions can't take lots of fat cat money elsewhere. So it incentivizes both sides. And that one did pretty well. Another one is just is to go back to this disclosure topic is the notion that we have all this money since Citizens United, that so-called dark money flowing around, unregulated money. That is, it's unregulated. And the main way is that politically active groups, nonprofit groups don't have to disclose who's donating to them. So rich people can give to these nonprofits and the nonprofits spend the money to influence the elections, but you never know who's behind the nonprofit. So requiring at least putting into the sunshine, the donors to these nonprofits, making the dark money not dark anymore. That was a big winner or did pretty well in the, in the tournament. The other one I guess I should mention was part of when we were talking about money in politics, we're also talking about the money that's spent in Washington and in state capitals to influence politics, i.e. lobbying money and the ability of lobbyists to arrange fundraisers for these people and sort of hold their hand all the time. Another so-called revolving door, which is this notion that somebody who's a lobbyist one day suddenly spins through the revolving door and becomes the deputy assistant secretary for regulating the very industry he worked for. Right. Or or conversely, the deputy secretary of whatever, she spins through the revolving door and then becomes the, the lobbyist for the National Association of whatever. Right. <laughs> and right. Unholy, these holy, unholy alliances. So all of those did pretty well in the money and politics bracket, but not as well as just the straight up repeal Citizens United. I wonder if it's emblematic of anything. And I'm curious about your thoughts, because the Citizens United as a decision, as a concept, has taken on sort of a it's a landmark decision, but it's beyond just the landmark Supreme Court decision. It's it actually has like cultural significance. It has political significance in a way that is not super typical of Supreme Court decisions and maybe not even typical of issues that relate to sort of the the nuts and bolts of elections, you know, the kind of policy behind the policy. So I'm curious about your view about the fact that that one surfaced, that one came to the top. It, it It's the one that won the bracket. But you also made a comment a few minutes ago about how maybe it didn't even... It didn't quite make it into the final two because of some of the impracticalities of pursuing it, despite it's sort of the current zest and appeal in doing so. So I guess I'm just curious if you think that that is is, is more broadly reflective of, of efforts to address money in politics. Are there these other issues that you mentioned, some of which I think are better known than others, but none of which are particularly well known, as certainly as compared to the, the fame and notoriety Citizens United has? Is that, I guess, what I'm asking, is that a sort of a mistake? Are people who are really trying to address this issue, should they be putting, the, you know, sinking their claws into some of those other issues you talked about that may have more practical? effect may be a more obvious path to victory and accomplishing those things. Yeah, just just curious about your thoughts about that. So the journalist in me says, I don't want to tell people they're making a mistake. Yeah. But and, and I'm trying to play it, play it even Stephen here. But sure. I would say the news analysis of the thing is, is that there are plenty <laughs> of other ideas that are a lot more readily attainable than actually reversing a Supreme Court precedent. For the reasons I had mentioned a minute ago, I mean, it's just it's yeah, yes, you're right. Citizens United. It's not every day that maybe once a decade that, you know, more than a half of one percent of Americans can 
flick to the short title of a Supreme Court decision. Right. I mean, right. Most people know Roe versus Wade. Right. Maybe a lot of people in the voting rights community know Shelby County versus Holder, which is the one that undid the Voting Rights Act. But Citizens United, right, has taken on this holy grail that if we only could repeal Citizens United, all would be well. Well, that might be true. All it would do actually would be, as I said a minute ago, just repealing the decision would not in and of itself fix the system. All a repeal would do, de facto repeal, which would mean amending the Constitution to say states and Congress can write these laws anyway, would still mean the states and the Congress would have to write the darn laws. Right. So it's it's quite it's a bank shot. It's a very difficult, difficult and long bank shot. And there are just lots of other things that could be done to shrink the influence of money in politics at the edges. And I think I do think that there are increasing number of people in the campaign finance advocacy world that I talk to who say, gosh, I wish we just could get off this Citizens United thing. And let's just talk about, you know, let's let's talk about something we might actually get done. Disclosure. That here's one, which is right now, while the people who pay for radio and TV ads have to be disclosed. The people who pay for social media ads do not have to be. Right. <laughs> and that would be a very, it's a simple bill. It's just, it has to do with, you know, the internet rose up after radio and TV. The law was written before the internet was contemplated. This is one of the main avenues that allowed foreign inf interference and disinformation in the 2016 election. It would only take a simple majority of Congress and a president's signature to make them apply those disclosures to online advertising. And it could do a lot of good. And the House Democrats have voted for it. And the fact that the Senate Republicans under Mitch McConnell have decided not to touch that mm -hmm. might be worth paying a little bit more attention to because forcing that issue would have a tangible, not a cure-all effect, but a tangible effect. Sure. So it brings up the point that I guess I'll end with, which is, this idea that we are within striking distance of a major election in this country, and it doesn't seem, although, you know, never say never, it doesn't seem as if there's an appetite between now and then to change the rules of the game much. And so in, in, in large part, I think that the rules we have, we will largely have between now and the election, and it, it is certainly a major and consequential one. I'm curious from the Fulcrum's point of view, what do you imagine will be the focus of your coverage as it pertains to democracy reform in the context of a major election, given the reality of the rules as they are today? You know, what are you most looking forward to covering? What are your viewers, your listeners, your subscribers? What are they all most interested in hearing about and reading about? What 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 should we be looking out for if if what we're curious about is democracy reform between now and November? I think the answer to that is very clear, which is our coverage is now not quite exclusively, but I would say 90% of the, of the work we're doing now is about the efforts to make sure that the November election is conducted comprehensively, thoroughly, and, and safely. Mm -hmm. That means coverage of the efforts in the states to plenty of states are voluntarily trying to make it easier to vote with expanded vote by mail and easy, easier registration and extending the deadlines for returning ballots. Plenty of states are not and are facing litigation. There's a wave of lawsuits. I think there's civil rights groups and the Democratic Party are pressing lawsuits in, I think, 17 different states to try and compel easier access to the polls. There's a big debate in Congress over money. Congress has given $400 million to the states to help them conduct smoother and healthier elections this fall. Everybody agrees that's not nearly enough. The states are going to face a wave of voting by mail and absentee voting this year 
whether the rules are relaxed or not. We saw that in the primaries on June 2nd, second Super Tuesday, the biggest day of voting since the pandemic began. Huge wave of mail-in voting, and a lot of cities weren't ready for it, my own included. Washington, D.C. dropped the ball relatively big time, lost my absentee ballot, made me stand in line for two and a half hours. But I don't hold a grudge. Plenty of people have to stand in lines. (laughs) No, I was was kind of serious. I mean, plenty of people in this country have to stand and around the world stand in much longer lines and do much more endure much more hardships to vote. But I'll just say D.C., which sort of prides itself on running a good election, dropped the ball this time. It's a little bit of a digression by way of saying a lot of places are not ready. Even places that want to get ready are not ready. They don't have the poll workers. They don't have the equipment. They don't have the literally don't have the budgets for the printing or the postage. You've got a postal service that's going to run out of money in September, potentially and right before they're going to be asked to carry millions and millions more pieces of very, very important mail. So this is the dominant story for us. Once in a while, we do a campaign finance story. The Supreme Court the other day upheld Montana's disclosure laws. That was a story for us, but I would say day in and day out, it's about making it easier. It's about the fight on both sides to make it either easier or harder to vote. Remembering, of course, as I'm sure many of your listeners know, President Trump is opposed to these efforts. He is saying many unsubstantiated things about fraud. We're trying to give that story its due and cover when, you know, try and fact check and call out what we do know and what we don't know about fraud, which is that there's been very, very little of it and that the small amounts of it are attributable to Republicans and Democrats alike. Mail-in balloting benefits Republicans and Democrats equally historically. So what the president's saying is not true. We're trying to give that fair coverage. So that's our story. I mean, that's the story. Mm-hmm. It doesn't seem like it's going to be much of a campaign issue between President Trump and former Vice President Biden, although they have very different ideas about this. President Trump drained the swamp, didn't do it. Joe Biden talked about public financing for campaigns long when he was a senator, hasn't made these issues really top of mind in his campaign the way Pete Buttigieg or Amy Klobuchar did. So instead, we're really focused on, you know, is this election going to come off? Is it going to happen? Are people going to trust the results? Of course, that's the ultimate question. Will the election happen in a way that people trust the result? So that makes me ask this question, which is you mentioned a few different institutions that you had questions about their readiness, right? Ranging from the post office to poll workers, you know, to throughout the process and to the point of will the public accept the outcome, it occurs to me that one other institution has to definitely be ready, and that's the media. And since you're in the media, my question is about what is the readiness, as you see it, of the media, as you assess the media landscape beyond the fulcrum, to be able to cover such a different experience. I'm, I'm talking to you today from California. We've had mail-in ballots for a good long time. We've also have a more recent history of allowing mail, mail-in ballots to come in a few days after Election Day, even, as long as they're postmarked by Election Day. Anyway, this is all just a, a by way of saying that we've gotten into the habit a little bit here in California of understanding that the vote count on election night is a very, very small piece of the story, and it could take days or weeks to get the full story, and election results do actually meaningfully change 
change between the day that the election is held and and the weeks after once the counting has happened. I'm not sure that necessarily that's a reality that the public and and maybe more specifically the media kind of communicating to the public is as used to telling that story. And you just imagine these horror stories of the public getting one story the night of election, the media calling it one way and weeks later having to call it another way and and that seeding distress. So that was more by way of kind of buildup than I had meant. But I'm just curious about your view on media readiness for this election. Well, I think it was a superb follow-up question to what I said a minute ago, because it is, it's a vitally important thing for us to begin educating the public now that this election is going to be very different for most Americans than what they're used to, and that there really should be no expectation, given how close we assume the election will remain. This is going to be a a 10-point election. I mean, at most, it's going to be far, far less than that in many swing states. And I really think no one should expect to go to bed on Tuesday night, November 3rd, thinking they know who won the election. I think that's highly unlikely. The problem is that, as you alluded to a minute ago, the country has this sort of habit mm-hmm. of that election night is like the Super Bowl or like Christmas Eve or like, you know, it's sort of a it's sort of this moment in time where the polls close and Shazam, we know <laughs> we know what happened. And that that's difficult even on the on a regular election night. It's going to be highly different this year for all the reasons you just said. Ballots coming, surges of mail coming in, extensions to get the ballots back, closeness of the results. There may be, I think it's fair to say that in many places where it's close, both sides will go to the court to try and steer the out, a, a tight outcome their way. There'll be many, many, those of us who are old enough to remember 2000, which not all of us are, but and those of us who remember it, it gives us, it gives us the sweats, many fights about, you know, did that, was the hole punched all the way through the ballot or was it only punched partially way through the ballot? Did the oval get filled or did it not get filled? I'm telling you, you know, this is this, this playing for the presidency, people will go to enormous lengths for a small advantage. And it, it, it's going to take, it's going to take days. There is going to be a strong preference for the person who thinks that he has won to declare his victory, and for the person who thinks that he hasn't won, I'm talking about the presidency here, which is why I'm using the male pronouns, to fight tooth and nail until until the last vote is, is counted. So, yes, the media, need, we need to start laying the groundwork now, often and repeatedly. First thing to do is to not assume that delayed results on election night means something bad is happening. Sure, yeah. And to not think, aha, there's the Republicans might say, aha, there's fraud. The Democrats might say, aha, the Republicans are stealing the election. Let's start from the premise that neither of those things is true and that the election work, you know, the bureaucrats, the geeks who want to get the numbers (laughs) right are trying hard to get the numbers right and just be willing to wait for a little bit. Well, this has been really interesting and in so many ways when talking about the 2020 election, a little bit terrifying, but I appreciate you talking us through it. And I think it's really exciting, the work that you do. So maybe one last time before I let you go, just remind folks where they can go online to find the fulcrum and to to get this news coverage. And as you mentioned, to kind of participate in in keeping an eye on democracy reform. Gosh, Andrew, thank you. First of all, Andrew, thank you for having me on yet one more time. It's the fulcrum.us. And if you go to the site, and you feel like being passive, the, one of the easiest things to do is sign up for our daily newsletter, and we'll send you an email at 3 o'clock Eastern time every afternoon, giving you a, a taste of what's on the site. Terrific. Thank you so much. I really appreciate you taking the time. Thank you very much.